Hi there, I'm Greg from Kapow. Visit us at kapow.com to check out our unique collection of everyday reusable products designed to help you do more with less. C-U-P-P-O-W.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. What's as American as apple pie and still illegal in the U.S.? Find out on today's episode of Eating Matters. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liut, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Okay, so what's as American as apple pie? According to advocates, the answer is hemp, a variety of the cannabis sativa plant. I probably mispronounced that. Um, But anyway, the cultivation of which uh, is currently illegal in the U.S. The Guardian published a piece on hemp this past Sunday um, claiming that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams John Adams all grew hemp, which was used for things like paper, rope, cloth. Um, The first flag of the U.S. sewn by Betsy Ross is said to have been made from hemp, and the Declaration of Independence was drafted on hemp paper. Today, we're going to be speaking with Eric Steenstra and Amy Default about the benefits of this plant and what advocates are doing to make its cultivation legal in the U.S., Later on the show, we'll be joined by Jesse Gould from Oxford, our featured Startup of the Week. But before we get into our discussion on hemp, I want to go over some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. First up, I want to talk about Philadelphia. Last Wednesday, the city made history as their city council advanced a proposal to tax sugary drinks, which will fund universal pre-K in the city. This is a measure that um, would make Philly the country's first um, major city in the U.S. to impose such a quote, sin tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. There was some back and forth about the exact rate that was going to be put forward, and the final decision by the council came down, came to a 1.5 cents per ounce tax, which was a little bit down from the 3 cents per ounce uh, tax rate that Mayor Jim Kenney proposed back in March. But the proposal will still bring in an estimated $91 million per year, and interestingly, uh, also applies to diet drinks. The measure will face one more vote before being finalized. Um, The vote happens tomorrow, but um, most people are expecting the city council to officially seal the deal and move forward. This is a huge win for the public health community, and it was no doubt made possible by um, things like the, the nation's first soda tax happening in Berkeley, California. I think we can expect to see a lot more of these proposals popping up throughout the country and actually passing, which is a a big sea change from where we were a year or two ago. Moving on, I want to talk about SNAP always. Um, So there were two compelling studies on food access that were recently released that I want to mention. The first is a USDA Amber Waves report on food deserts, which found that both high and low income households consider store characteristics other than proximity and deciding where to shop. So this study is interesting because much of the research, um, the prior research on food store access, assumed that those in food deserts were constrained by their local food environment and were therefore forced to rely on the smaller stores in their neighborhood that tend to have higher prices and less variety, especially less variety of fresh produce. 
So this study um, used data from the USDA's National Household Food Acquisition and Purchase Survey, which is a mouthful, so we're just going to call that Food Apps, um, the acronym. Um, So yeah, researchers use this data to examine where U.S. households actually shop, how far the store is from their home, what mode of transportation they use, and found some interesting things. So in terms of their key findings, they found that households often bypass the nearest supermarket to obtain groceries. And this uh, behavior is consistent, consistent across transportation modes, suggesting that U.S. households are not, in fact, as limited Uh, by the food stores in their own neighborhoods. It also found that roughly 90% of those households that participate in the SNAP program and the WIC program and or the WIC program did their primary grocery shopping in a supermarket or a super center. So um, other factors, basically uh, this is all to say other factors such as household and and neighborhood resources, education, and taste preferences are thought to be maybe more important determinants of food cho- choice than proximity. Um, I wanted to bring this up this week because you will remember last week in our conversation with Chuck Abbott, um, we talked about the updated proposed SNAP retailer requirements. Um, and one of the arguments against changing these requirements um, for stores, which would require the stores to stock healthier food, would mean that smaller retailer establishments like convenience stores and bodegas would be forced to drop out of the program, thus resulting in fewer options of local places, places for SNAP recipients to shop. So in a way, this study can be used to support the USDA's proposal um, as it finds that most people don't rely on the closest store option and most SNAP recipients do a lot of their, most of their shopping at a traditional supermarket. And speaking of household resources, um, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities released a new study recently that found that food stamp recipients would buy more nutritious foods, notably vegetables, poultry, and fish, if benefits were raised by just $1 a day, or 24%. So my hope is that studies like these can be used to support the argument um, for more food assistance in this country. Unfortunately, Congress has taken a more fiscally conservative approach um, to federal nutrition programs recently. For instance, the 2014 Farm Law um, called for an $8 billion reduction in food stamp spending over 10 years, which granted it's smaller than the proposed $40 billion cuts that conservatives thought, but um, is a cut nonetheless. So just a few other facts before I wrap up my conversation on SNAP. Um, Reminder, 44.3 million people uh, receive food stamps um, as of today with an average benefit of $126.26 per month, which is about four... per person per day. Um, And fun fact, enrollment has declined for four months in a row now. Moving on, last week, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst tried to insert language into the National Defense Authorization Act that would continue to offer meat options that meet or exceed the standards established in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. This was a thinly veiled attempt uh, to block the Humane Society's Meatless Monday campaign, which is working to get institutions like the military, hospitals, schools to reduce its meats consumption. It goes without saying, but I'm just going to say it anyways. Senator Erst has close ties to animal agriculture, which is obviously one of the biggest businesses in her state and has received thousands from organizations like the National Pork Producers Council towards her campaigns in the past. Uh, Luckily, uh, in my opinion at least, uh, the Senate passed the measure yesterday and failed to include her amendment. 
And finally, um, yesterday, we're going to move on uh, to North Dakota. By a three-to-one margin, North Dakotans refused to allow corporate hog and dairy farming, keeping a blanket ban on corporate ownership that dates back to 1932. The referendum overturned a law passed last year by the Republican-controlled legislature to relax the ban by allowing out-of-state corporations to own hog and dairy farms covering up to one square mile. Proponents of the statewide ban says that protects family-sized uh, farms from the deep pockets of outside investors, while those in support of the exemption um, for hog and dairy farms say it would broaden the financing available to livestock producers and help them modernize. According to the Associated Press, nine states restrict corporate farming, but most have some sort of exceptions for livestock producers. And that wraps it up for our new segment today. Be sure to tweet or direct message us at Eat Matters HRN if you would like to include a particular policy update or have thoughts on the ones we discussed today. Okay. Turning to the topic at hand, today we'll be discussing all things hemp. Joining me on the line to do so are my two guests, Eric Steenstra and Amy Dufault. Eric is the executive director of the Hemp Industries Association, a membership-based nonprofit trade group representing the, industri- the interests of the hemp industry. Um, and Amy is a director of communications at the Brooklyn Fashion and Design Accelerator and has been a sustainable fashion writer for over two decades. Eric and Amy, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you both for coming on. Um, Amy, we'll, we'll kick it off with you. Um, can you just, we'll start the very, very beginning. Can you just um, describe for our listeners what hemp actually is? Yeah, well, it's many things, but mm-hmm. it's, it's funny. The more you read about it, the more you understand it is not marijuana. <laughs> yeah, we're um, going to talk about that. It, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a it's a it's a fast growing plant that grows faster than most weeds. It can grow about fifteen to twenty feet high, and it can be used for everything from textiles to food, from body care products to building materials, and has been around since time began. Um, wow! Yeah, so that that that's <laughs> my sounds, quick soundbite for right, you. Right, right. That sounds almost too good to be true. Um, can you? Give us maybe some specific product examples. I I recently read an op-ed that Elizabeth Kucinich wrote in The Hill kind of talking um, about the mirrored benefits that you um, kind of hinted hinted at um, of hemp. And I'm wondering if you can kind of give us some, some examples of how hemp is used. Well, I mean, it's used in a lot of uh, a variety of foods and different oils and textiles like rope and, and hemp. Um, Are the oils I mean, edible? rope and uh, canvas. Um, and it's used in clothing. It's used, it's actually used in so many different products from beauty products to food to fashion. It's amazing the more you do, can, you do research and that you can find out what, what hemp is actually used in or can be used in. Yeah. Versus things like cotton or petroleum-based oils Eric, that are used in beauty products. Um, Eric, do you have any other examples that you want to throw in there just to sort of help set the stage? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So um, some other good examples that a lot of people don't even realize is that uh, hemp's being used pretty extensively now in uh, auto parts, for example. Really? Uh, com- yeah, hmm. composite materials are being made from hemp fiber and replacing fiberglass and you know, major auto manufacturers like BMW and 
Ford and Mercedes and Volkswagen are all using these uh, in their cars and, and make the car lighter and they perform better, especially in crash tests. And uh, and it's a recyclable recyclable material at the end of uh, its its life uh, as, as compared to fiberglass. So that's been one really um, neat application. There's also building materials. I think Amy mentioned that, but maybe I yeah. expand on that a little bit. There's a material called hempcrete that uh, is made with a mixture of the hemp herd or the woody core of the stalk mm-hmm. uh, when it's mixed with lime and water. And uh, it produces a sustainable, um, non-toxic, naturally breathable, and uh, naturally mold-resistant material that has really excellent insulative properties. Um, and so they've been using it in Europe and France and, and the U.K. and some other areas of Europe for, for a number of years now. But uh, just been starting to come to the U.S. and we're seeing a few projects here, and I think uh, you know, long term, it'll be a, it'll be a great material that'll um, really help out the U.S. building industry. Wow! And it's also edible. Are the are the oils that Amy mentioned edible, or is that for a different application? Yeah, no. So they would be. So um, the, that would be the seed oil. So um, when you take the you know, the seed, is very nutritious. It's high in omega three and omega six essential fatty acids, which are those good fats. Mm-hmm. Doctors like to recommend for health. Uh, it's also an excellent plant-based source of protein. And when you crush the seed, it produces a very nice oil. It can be used in salad dressings and other types of edible, you know, baked goods, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It also can be used in industrial products or in, in uh, cosmetics and uh, body care products. So it's got, it's pretty versatile. Yeah, to, to say the least. Okay, <laughs> so I mean, yeah. Um, so one of the things that Amy uh, alluded to um, was that people think it is hemp is synonymous with marijuana. And indeed, uh, you know, in doing my background research and just in having conversations with people, I think um, there is a common misinterpretation still that you can maybe get high from hemp. So, Eric, I'm wondering, can you can you officially, for the record, debunk this? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, yeah. no problem. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, have, I mean, the, the, the federal government began sort of demonizing marijuana in the 1930s, and at that point, they didn't really understand the differences between hemp varieties of cannabis and, and drug type or marijuana varieties, and so um, it kind of got lumped in there, and so uh, after 75, 80 years of misinformation, a lot of people do have that sort of mis- misperception, but you know, I like to, to, you know, sort of tell people it's, you know, like the difference between sweet corn and field corn or, a, you know, a chihuahua and a St. Bernard. You know, they're yeah. both dogs, but they're very different types of dogs. <laughs> Same goes for hemp. It's, uh, you know, it has such a small amount of the, uh, the psychoactive part of the plant, which is the tetrahydrocannabinol or THC in it. It's typically by law less than three, ten- you know, three tenths of a percent. And even scientifically, to say it's under 1%, you really couldn't get high with it. So marijuana types uh, of cannabis would have, you know, anywhere from 5 to 20% THC. So even if you smoke temp, you're just going to, you know, likely get a headache. <laughs> that does not sound like fun. Um, are there other plants that are commonly used today that, that you can, in fact, get high from that you can draw a comparison to for our listeners? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. The uh, You know, a lot of people... You know, uh, regularly consume you know poppy seeds, for example, right. right on our bagels or or on a muffin. And of course, poppy is also a plant that produces opiates, and that uh, 
is controlled. So it's another great example of a plant where it has, you know, very positive beneficial uses, but also can be used as a drug in certain types of the you know, varieties of, of the poppy. Right. Okay. So let me see if I have this right. Um, we can purchase goods made with hemp in this country, but we can't grow or produce it. Is that right? Right. Oh, sort of. Yes. So uh, up until 2014, the law did not distinguish whatsoever between hemp and marijuana. It just said all cannabis plants are illegal, but it had an exception that said that like certain parts of the plant, for example, the stalk and the fiber from the stalk or the seed, if it's been processed in a way that it won't grow, those were legal to import. And so, uh, you know, a lot of companies here in the United States actually were importing hemp, and we have over half a billion dollar industry based on entirely on imports. Wow. Now, in 2014, Congress passed uh, a new version of the Farm Bill and included a provision in there. It's called Section 7606, and it basically defined industrial hemp and then allowed for research and pilot programs under the uh, State Departments of Agriculture and under universities. So we've seen some limited, uh, you know, uh, research programs and pilot programs that have started to happen in a number of states, but that's the only legal hemp that's that's uh, available today. Most, if a commercial, if a farmer just wants to grow it commercially, mm-hmm. that's not allowed. Um, okay, so to help us, um, I want to I want to help listeners um, understand a little bit more. You know, put put sort of hemp in context. We've we've talked a little bit about the, a lot actually about the benefits and the, and the possible uses, but I want to kind of drill down on this and let's let's compare hemp to a different fiber. Um, so, Amy, this is this is kind of your area of expertise. I'm wondering if you can talk us through a little bit um, about the benefits of hemp over, let's say, cotton. From a fiber perspective, well, well, there's, I mean, there's so many, but I mean, growing hemp has so many like positive ecological and and economic benefits. But you know, a lot of the times in the fashion industry, we're using kind of these constant sound bites. Like it takes you know more than five thousand gallons of water to produce two pounds of cotton. Wow. Um, and I know you know not so that makes a, a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. Um, so if you even just think about it, just like that, but that's a pretty what, effective you know, soundbite, by the way. Water used for cotton and hemp, I believe, and Eric could probably correct me, but that it's about half the amount of water for growing hemp that that you would use for cotton. And I know, um, and even with hemp, like the the fabric doesn't wear out as fast, and um, it's anti the yeah. antibacterial properties of of hemp as a fabric versus cotton, but I think just like just just the amount of pesticides too that that are being used to grow cotton, where uh, hemp has a lot of natural insecticides or kind of pesticides built in. Bugs just don't really like it. Mm-hmm. So between like the the amount of pesticides and water that's being used to grow cotton, non-organic cotton, as much as organic cotton. Um, you know, like if, when you're looking at the difference between growing or non-organic cotton versus something like hemp, it's such a no-brainer to think about wanting to invest more in hemp just for the environment. Right. What about yeah. from, from a from a price perspective? Are they are they similar, or would they be similar? I would imagine that that hemp at this point, and and again, Eric is like the guru, the <laughs> hemp guru here. But um, I would imagine that with like with any anything, I mean, hemp's been around forever, but it would be a new it would be a new crop here in the United States that we'd be investing in. So as with anything, when it's a new material, 
um, you would be spending more on it. Is my my guess on that, Eric? What do you some, think? But, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I can I can I mean so Amy's right. It's a new material in the sense that you know, we haven't been growing it here for seventy five or eighty years, and so. Um, you know, a lot of the all the genetics that we had, the old hemp that they used to grow, that's all been lost. All the processing equipment is no longer here. The infrastructure is gone, right? So mm-hmm. we have to start over rebuilding it as an industry. But yet, hemp is very old in that, you know, it was a crop that was grown going back to the founding fathers, you know, of our country and going back thousands of years all the way to China. So it's, you know, it's not a new crop in that sense. But I right. think in terms of the sustainability side, it's, uh, you know, it, it is significantly better than cotton in terms of its water usage. Yeah, it uses significantly less water. And uh, and certainly the pesticides, I understand that cotton is uh, the most heavily sprayed agricultural crop on the planet with over 25% of all the pesticides going into that. So it's it's definitely not a, you know, not a very environmentally friendly crop. And then the other thing about hemp that's interesting is that you can grow it in all 50 states, whereas cotton is really a southern crop. Right. You're not going to see people growing it in, you know, North Dakota or Maine or something like that. So it's a little more versatile there too. Um, I, have, I have a question. You mentioned sort of the the, the fact that hemp is um, kind of you don't have to use as many pesticides. Is that just because it isn't grown, and so we, you know, it isn't grown in the U.S., and so there haven't been the kind of pests or or weeds uh, that have sprung up to inhibit its growth or is it something more innate in the plant that causes yeah, I think it it's, it's more more you know unique to the plant i mean for for one thing uh, as we could take an example like uh, canada right they weren't growing hemp for a long time and they started about 15 years ago and they're now you know growing about they grew about 100,000 acres last year and uh you know there's no pesticides that are even approved for the plant so i know that they're not using them but even in talking to farmers up there, there's you know there's very little pest issues, and I think part of that may be you know, just the type of plant that it is. It's it's a taller, more hardy plant than cotton, but also the cannabinoids and some of the you know the production of uh, resins and flowers I think tends to deter pests as well. Huh. Um, but it's not completely pest-free. There are some pests that will go after it, but it's just. You know, I don't, I'm not aware of any part of the world where hemp's being grown and they're spraying pesticides on the crop. Okay. All right. We're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a pause here. We're going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into some of the current legislative proposals to legalize hemp production in the U.S. and what's at stake with legalization. Stay tuned. Americans throw away 58 billion disposable cups every year. A lot of those cups will still be around long after you're dead. Kind of dark, I know, but I'm Greg from Kapow, and we decided to do something about it. We created the only glass travel mug that's 100% U.S. made. You can check it out alongside our complete line of everyday reusables at kapow.com, C-U-P-P-O-W.com. Done. 
And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Eric Steenstra and Amy Default about legalizing hemp cultivation in the U.S. Before we went to break, um, we were talking about cotton, and I kind of want to pick up that thread. No pun intended. (laughs) Sorry, I I had to. I had to. Anyway, um, um, yeah. So last week we reported that the USDA um, was going to pay three million dollars, their three hundred million dollars to cotton producers to help sort of stabilize the industry that's seen a lot of declines um, due to an increased globalized supply. Um, And I'm wondering if what we just heard from Amy. that which was basically that hemp could be a great alternative to cotton in a lot of ways. Um, I'm wondering, Eric, if you think that the cotton industry or any similar industry that stands to lose from legalizing hemp production is working to sort of block some of your legislative efforts to legalize this crop. You know, we haven't. Uh, I'm not aware of any efforts by the cotton industry to come. You know, to go after hemp. Uh, you know, so I, I mean, I think at this point. You know, most of the push is to grow hemp here in the United States, and as we, you know, as we all probably know, the textile industry here in the United States has been devastated by, you know, textiles from where other countries where they have much cheaper labor overseas. So I don't know. I mean, cotton is still grown here and exported to other countries. So maybe that, you know, there's a factor there. But one of the things I feel like with hemp, I mean, I think it, it you know, we've seen a lot of excellent hemp textiles coming out of China, and I think that. They'll continue to be blended with cotton and other fabrics and you know whatnot, but uh, I don't know. I, th- I think that hemp here in the United States is going to probably be more a little bit more of an industrial fiber. I think maybe that'll be more of the focus. Things like composites or other high tech applications might be more of what we would see here domestically. That's just just my opinion, but you know, we'll have to see how the industry develops. And can you can you tell us like what? Eric, how large of an industry in total um, that, you know, hemp could potentially represent? Well, right now, the the Hemp Industries Association does an annual estimate of the size of the market. And um, we estimated for 2015 that the total retail sales of hemp products was about 575 to $600 million. Wow. So, um, you know, that's, again, based entirely on imports. So we feel like, uh, you know, we've seen significant like double-digit growth each year uh, over the last seven or eight years that we've been tracking this. And so um, I, you know, I, think, I think we could see this grow to a billion-dollar market within, you know, five or six years. Wow. And Amy, the um, economic benefits of hemp is something that you have studied. Is that right? Can you tell us? Oh, you know, I know a little bit, a little bit of this, a little bit of that about a lot of things. Um, (laughs) But you know, you just got me thinking, um, Eric. You know, I was at a, I was actually at a cotton conference uh, two months ago down in Raleigh, and I had this guy who was a a cotton broker kind of lean over and ask me why I thought cotton wasn't being sold as as much as it had been in the past, and it was a lot of the blends that they're doing now are these um, synthetic blends that are making fibers that are plant-based, like cotton, and I, I would imagine like hemp as well, to be this sort of looked at as a luxury fiber in terms of, a, in terms of apparel. Hmm. Because and it's, the same, it's the same thing as, uh, you know, this cheapening of food, putting in junky products in food. And it's the same thing as uh, in fashion, you know, we're kind of, we have these like mixed synthetic fibers so that, that that the fibers can't even stand on their own anymore. I'm I'm excited to see what's going to happen with hemp moving forward, just to see if it 
is, like Eric said, going to be used in kind of more high-tech um, applications, is, which mm-hmm. is funny thinking about hemp in that way, like a high-tech, a high-tech yeah, you don't application. Realize. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's suddenly it's going to be this whole, hopefully a whole new industry and not just research, you know, research plots mm-hmm. through universities that actual farmers can be farming it without being fearful that they're going to be uh, shut down by the government because mm-hmm. there just might be, you know, more than more than just hemp growing out in right. the fields. And I think that's yeah. that's a big fear right now with farmers. Like, why invest in something that's illegal? That might just get torn apart. You yeah. can't invest in something like that. It's too risky. Yeah, and that's a great point, Amy. We're still at that point now where there's you know there's a few producers that are kind of on the cutting edge that are wading into this a little bit. But you're right; most farmers are going to sit on the sidelines, and you know hemp's not a commodity crop yet, and it's not uh, it's not proven what the market is, and you know we don't have the infrastructure and all these things. So there's some hurdles for us to get over. But I do think uh, there's interesting. There was a um, there's a researcher at Clarkson University in New York who came up with a way to take the hemp bast fiber, that the, the fiber on that sort of the outside that's being used like for textiles, that type of thing, and use that and convert it into a material that was replacement for graphene, which could be used in supercapacitors. When I heard about this, I read about it, I was just blown away because, you know, nobody really thinks of hemp in those terms. They think about, you know, rope and canvas and you know, what, you know, like more traditional products. And so I think those kinds of potential applications and, you know, things like the composites for the auto industry, those are really opening eyes and making people think again, hey, you know, plant-based uh, resource like this could really have some incredible applications. And could, could be something really important. Yeah. Um, Eric, what is hap- what is a strategy um, from your perspective, the association's perspective, to move the needle on advancing legislation that would make this possible? Can you tell us about maybe where some of the proposals are currently pending and, and what they're asking to do? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been building some good support in Congress. I think the biggest, you know, the biggest hurdle that we need to jump over right now is to get Congress to pass legislation that would fully remove hemp from the Controlled Substances Act and then allow states just to regulate it like any other, you know, crop. And so um, we have two bills that are currently pending in Congress. Uh, there's uh, HR 525 in the House that currently has uh, 70 co-sponsors, including you know, a nice bipartisan support. You know, um, quite a few Republicans and Democrats are on the bill. Yeah. And and so that that's been growing. You know, 70 co-sponsors, pretty nice nice amount there. And then in the Senate, there's a bill called S134, and that bill was actually introduced by Senator Wyden of uh, Oregon, along with Senator McConnell, the majority leader. <laughs> And that's a, that's Senator Mitch McConnell. Us, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Senator McConnell has, has become a, you know, a, a major proponent of this. And, I mean, we just had this big celebration last week. We do a, an annual industry promotion called Hemp History Week. And during Hemp History Week, Senator McConnell and Senator Wyden and Senator Paul and Merkley put in this resolution on the Senate floor to commemorate Hemp, hemp History Week and talk wow. about the economic potential, and it passed unanimously. So... I feel like we're making some progress. We're just not quite there yet, but uh, definitely some exciting things that are happening. So it's interesting to me. So you guys decided to to, um, focus on like a federal plan of attack um, first as opposed to what, you know, let's say like the marijuana industry is doing, which is kind of um, targeting like individual states. And the hope is that once a, the, a, a certain number of individual states have legalized marijuana or medical marijuana, that the federal government would be forced to act. 
Um, what made you decide to go the federal route first? Well, we actually we've been focusing sort of a dual dual pronged attack, both in terms of the state and the federal level. And you know, one of our goals was to educate legislators at the state level because a lot of them end up after serving in their state legislatures, they end up coming to Washington. Yeah. So by educating them there, they would bring that knowledge forward. I mean, we had long you know years ago we had a bill in Illinois, for example, that then state senator Barack Obama voted in favor of. Now. You know, those are the kinds of things, you know, when they have a chance to consider something like that and then bring it forward. A number of the legislators are in Congress now. We started working with at the state level. So, um, and, and actually, we had a number of states that did pass some legislation before anything happened at the federal level. But a lot of states did sit on the sidelines because they were saying, well, why should we do anything? The federal government's just you know, yeah. illegal. So once the Farm Bill passed in 2014, we had like 10 states that had legislation at that point. Since then, we've had 19 more states come on board, and so now there's 29 states with legislation that allows them to, you know, to move forward and take advantage of this. So it's 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 kind of snowballed, right? As as typically happens. Um, Amy, can you tell us what the what what's happening in the fashion world? Um, you know, what people are doing in that industry to promote the legalization of hemp? Yeah. Uh, there was actually a great documentary that Patagonia just came out with last week called um, Growing Warriors that was awesome. And it was, um, you know, just a little 12-minute documentary on vet- uh, this kind of veteran-to-farmer training organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Fibershed, which is an, a company on the West Coast that, that um, does many things, including creates f- creating fiber sheds all over the country, but also um, regenerative regenerative textiles. In, um, in California. But so, you know, here's Patagonia got behind something that was on this Kentucky hemp farmer and his story of coming back from, from fighting in the military and just wanting to stay on his land and, um, and grow hemp. So it's kind of like uh, this beautiful documentary on his, on his um, you know, journey with it. But it's pretty cool to me to see people like Patagonia who are always at the forefront anyway of, mm-hmm. of you know, pioneering innovation and sustainability and, but that they wanted to get behind something like this and, um, and just put a spotlight on it. I mean, the more we have large brands in the fashion industry like Patagonia, like Eileen Fisher, mm-hmm. who are supporting sustainability and textiles, I mean, it just gets it into the every, every man and yeah. we're able to talk about it and give it more legitimacy than just, you know, mm-hmm. the, the old hemp shops, you know, mm-hmm. on the old yeah. main streets and places like Burlington, Vermont, or, you know, it's like, it's hemp, hemp is becoming a lot more sophisticated, even though it's, again, like we said at the beginning of all this, it's this fiber that's been around since time began, but suddenly it's this whole new fiber we're looking at, but... Um, so, anyways, it's it's exciting to see companies like Patagonia getting behind it. Yeah, great. I'm so glad you brought that up, Amy. Uh, that is a really an ex- an excellent uh, uh, piece that Patagonia put together. And actually, the farmer uh, who's featured in that piece, Mike Lewis, from he's a you know, you know, former vet- or a veteran from Kentucky, who's now uh, got a small family farm in central Kentucky. And he's actually going to be in New York City this Friday, speaking at an event at the Javits Center. And um, that is a, it's an incredible piece. I definitely recommend anyone that's listening to go out and, and look that up. The, uh, uh, you know, I think if you probably search hemp in Patagonia, you'd probably come up with it. So um, that, it's, it's, a, it's a really excellent video. 
Oh, great. And Eric, any any information for our listeners where they can go to learn more on the legislative proposals or, or um, you know, get their two cents in? Absolutely, yeah. So if anybody's interested to find out more, but more importantly, to take action, because that's what we really need at this point is, you know, people writing their members of Congress and letting them know where they stand on the issue. Mm-hmm. They could go to votehemp.com slash take action, and there's a Sort of pre-written letters there, or you know, information on how to call your legislator if you want to uh, to reach out to them and talk to them about uh, supporting these bills that we have pending. Oh, great. All right. I'm going to have to, unfortunately, leave it there for a discussion of hemp. Um, I could talk about this all day. I think it is just so fascinating, and I'm really excited to see what the future holds in store for this industry. Um, For more on hemp legislation, uh, like Eric said, go to votehemp.com backslash take action and you can also read more about um sustainable fashion um written by amy fabulous pieces by amy um at bkaccelerator.com eric and amy thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today thank you all right thanks for having us all right yep that's right you know what time it is Time for a new segment, the Startup of the Week, where we feature an innovative and exciting new food organization at the end of each episode. And with that, I'm pleased to introduce Jesse Gould, founder and CEO of Oxford, a seasonal and sustainably sourced catering company based in New York City. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad uh, to be on. Um, we're ve- I'm very happy to have you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the company and how, and how it works? Sure. So we are an office catering company, and we make and serve lunch to offices and groups across Manhattan um, with a large focus on local sourcing, seasonality, and nutrition. Um, And the way it works is pretty simple. We try to keep it very easy for our customers to place orders from us. Mm -hmm. Um, We have one menu. It changes seasonally, um, and customers uh, place an order for sizes 10 to 600, um, and we deliver them a group lunch that's um, that's prepared fresh daily in our kitchen um, the next day. Wow. So, okay, so New York City, you know better than, than most, is flooded with lunch options and catering companies. So what, in your opinion, um, differentiates uh, Oxford from all of the, all of the rest? What makes yeah, it stand so out? Think, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. I said what makes it stand out? I think I think there are a couple things that make it stand out. I think for a lot of uh, group delivery options, um, it is typically um, you see restaurants uh, and and very good restaurants mm-hmm. who do catering kind of as a side business. And uh, while while sometimes that's successful, I think a lot of times it means that the menus and the customer service and even the presentation um, are not really uh, a priority for that restaurant because they're trying to run the restaurant and restaurants are very mm-hmm. very difficult to run. Mm-hmm. So what what we've done that's really differentiated is we have perfected all of those elements. So our menu is designed to be delivered. It's not designed to you know come straight from a kitchen and go straight to your 
straight to your table. Mm-hmm. So the food is designed to travel. Um, we've made the presentation a, a lot more appealing than your, your typical catering option because, you know, we, we all do eat with our eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we, and we've also really made it about the customer experience and made it as easy for people to order from, for small, large groups uh, as possible. Um, so many food businesses operate with um, super thin margins, right? Um, I'm wondering how you've been able to kind of grow the company while keeping your your operational costs um, contained, especially with your kind of commitments to sourcing locally. Yeah, that, I think that's a that is the question. Um, and just to you know give you a quick sense of of the context in which I developed Oxfert, mm-hmm. I spent about uh, seven years in in finance and um, and and also worked on on the investment side um, with with a couple of of food companies um, and and sort of came face to face with a lot of those challenges were with respect to scalability and margins. Um, and so when I when I decided to start Oxfert, every piece of the business was really designed with a focus on scaling at margins that were exciting. And some of the ways we think about doing that um, include things like we don't have brick-and-mortar restaurants um, mm-hmm. at all. So we don't have the expensive real estate or all of the people that it takes to do that, uh, to run a brick-and-mortar restaurant. Um, we also get a lot of operating leverage out of one commissary uh, kitchen. So instead wow. of you know, needing three you know, fast casual restaurants to serve one geographic area, all we need is one kitchen. Um, and then we've done a lot of other interesting things um, to make the margins um, exciting, which is the simplicity of our menu um, and using local sourcing actually to our advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when, when done properly, the idea of local sourcing and, and buying with the seasons is that you're actually supposed to be saving money because you're buying things when, when they're harvested and when they're most abundant. Um, and so if you, if you can kind of get ahead of that and, and develop your menu properly, it should be, it should be margin enhancing. Um, I don't think any of us are quite there yet, but, but that is, but that is absolutely um, the, the goal. way it should work. Yeah, yeah. Um, how have you found seasonality um, as one of your kind of, um, you know, big commitments? Have you found that to be challenging from a menu development perspective? Because, like, let's face it, we're in the Northeast, right? And as in, as much as I may want avocados to grow here, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but we live but we live in a world where we expect um to be able to have access to everything at any time and so i'm wondering if you found that to be kind of a challenge from the menu development perspective um for your customers um you know i would say i would say i would say no i i, I think that you know the the one item it's funny that you mentioned avocados yeah. i would say the one <laughs> genuinely because i think the one item that is sort of universal especially when it comes to the type of food we're 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 uh serving is avocados and we will never be able to get those locally but mm-hmm. i i think when it comes to um when it comes to what is available in the northeast 
Um, I don't think our chef or any of us have felt at all kind of limited by by the options that are that are available in in the Northeast. I think winter is probably the hardest season, um, mm-hmm. just because there are you know fewer things uh, that grow. I would say the harder part about sourcing locally is not necessarily that the um, the the things that grow in the Northeast here are are you know limited. It's more that you can't predict the availability, um, and so you know you develop a menu per season, mm-hmm. um, each season. But there may be items that the weather's a little funny, so they come later, or they don't right. come at all, or you know you, you, the supply is hard to predict. So I think that's more of a challenge, really, than than the variety that we're able to get here. The Northeast is. The Northeast has got lots of fun stuff. Yes, yes, that is that is very true, and, and in fact, um, a lot of our specialty crops, which is a, a term for vegetables, unfortunately, um, are, are grown in the in the in the Northeast. But there's still some that um, you know. Well, we're, it's never probably going to happen. But to that end, do you have specific commitments um, around uh, seasonality and and local sourcing that you like to tell your customer base about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we we are a very mission-driven organization. Um, we're on our path to becoming a, a B Corp, which means that we measure our impact to mm-hmm. people, planet, and the profits, uh, and profits. And so within that, as part of our um, environmental impact, um, we have requirements for how we will source things. So right. one of those is that everything we, um, 80% of anything on a menu has to be sourced um, from within 150 miles of of us wow um so 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 that's that's our kind of broad brush guideline and then kind of within there we have developed some of our own other um sourcing guidelines that have to do with um uh the the way uh, sustainably raised um uh animals um uh and and the way the animals are treated um but then also some standards around uh the way crops are are taken care of with respect to pesticides and things of that nature um, okay, so you mentioned earlier that you have a background in finance before moving over to the food industry. Do you think that, um, from your kind of perspective, launching this company in the food world, um, that you you know really needed the experience um, working in the food industry prior to starting your own company, or have you? Do you think it's not as important? Um, I think I think it's it. It's a it's a tricky answer. I think it is. It, it has historically not been as important, and that's historically what's been the problem. So huh. I think one of the reasons why, until recently, we haven't seen a lot of innovation in in food that will lead to. I mean, we've seen a lot of creative culinary innovation, but mm-hmm. innovation around supply chain models and things that will really start getting us access to the type, the quality, and the type of foods that we all need to. Be eating mm-hmm. is because we didn't have a lot of blending of the traditional business world with the food world. The food world was very much, in many cases, left to be kind of a, a creative, you know, a, a creative venture, and you could right. certainly do do well with that. So I think what what having a financial background has allowed me to do is create a business model that really has the potential to. Um, 
to to create change um, because I was a, I'm able to apply sort of traditional you know business principles and principles around cost structure and margin mm-hmm. um, to an industry where where a lot of that hasn't hasn't been done traditionally. I think that's changing, which is awesome. Um, but but I, I I do think that's you know the la- the you know last five years or so is when we've really started to see that change. Right. Okay, great. All right. Well, anything anything else you want to um, make listeners aware of before we wrap up for today? Um, you know, nothing specific. I mean, <laughs> if if anyone is interested in in you know in in working with us, we're we love to meet new people. Uh-huh. Um, and and you know, you can just go to our website www oxvert.com. Oh, great. Yes, I love, and one of the great things I think about this segment is I love featuring um, startups at at kind of different parts of their um, growth, right? So we have had in the past those that have been in existence for many, many years and those that are um, really in the, you know, just have like under 10 employees and are are poised to scale in the next year or so. (laughs) So um, I love love the diversity. I think that your food looks absolutely incredible. And um, yeah, like you said for more information on the company and most importantly to place your orders oxford.com <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today jesse thank you this is great thanks bye okay i want to thank all of our guests today um, and our sponsors for your generous support our show is produced um, with help from Taylor Lanzette and the show music is by the fabulously talented Tim Archer. Um, I want to thank my engineer, David Tedashore for being amazing every single week. Um, all episodes of eating matters are available on heritage radio networks website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, like share, follow and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at eat matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.